Look what you made me do. I was somebody new. Oh, baby, baby, I'm dancing with a stranger. Look what you made me do. I'm with somebody new. Oh, baby, baby, I'm dancing with a stranger. I don't want to be alone tonight. Alone tonight. Alone tonight. Oh, baby, baby, I'm dancing with a stranger. Wow. Who knew standing in line at Walmart could be so invigorating? It's your old chuckle buddy. Guess who? Jonathan James Ramtran. Reporting live for duty on this magnificent July 14th in the year of our Lord, 2019. Welcome to Jonathan Ramcharan, the podcast. Dancing with the stranger. I like that song. That's actually one of the few songs I don't mind listening to when I'm standing in line at Shoppers Drug Mart for, you know, minutes on end. I, I could have sworn this bag of potato chips were two for a dollar. <laughs> Haggling with the fucking cashiers. Oh my God, just pay for the garbage and get the fuck out of my way. Because I'm special. If you're new to the show, Jonathan Ramtran, the podcast, I am an actor extraordinaire. Yes, I am. Uh, 18 years of experience, diploma in theater arts. Ups and downs, smiles and frowns. I think back to um, some of my earlier, earlier uh, jaunts, jaunts, uh, strolls into the world of uh, performing. I once did this uh, production, this play called Heaven. Heaven. I'm in heaven, and my heart beats so that I could hardly speak, and I've seemed to find the happiness I seek, when we're out together dancing cheek to cheek. Heaven, I'm in heaven, and my heart beats so that I could hardly speak, and I found the happiness I seek. When I'm ass up on the bed, spread cheek to cheek. (laughs) Yeah, uh, Heaven by George F. Walker, a very uh, well-known, beloved, prominent Canadian playwright. He wrote this play called Heaven. And um, I did a production of it in Calgary, Alberta. Because I originally hail from out west. Go west! Life is peaceful there, go west. I'm usually, I'm usually, yeah, I'm usually, uh, no, I'm not. Actually, I'm a Torontonian through and through at the moment. I've been living in Toronto, Canada for the last, uh, hmm, like nine years or so, uh, ten years or so in total. I've been back and forth in this great province over the years, but, um, As of late, I've been living here steadily since 2011. But back in my early days of acting, I'm originally from Edmonton, Alberta. And I was doing a production of this play, Heaven, by George F. Walker in Calgary, Alberta. And um, you know what? It was a learning curve, a learning experience. Um, I was just 
I was 19 years old, fresh out of theater school. I had like creepy old men trying to get me in their office. It was like just this cute time for me when my eyes were wide open, bug-eyed, doe, you know, just, you know, real fucking, you know, big beaming eyes and a diaper full of shit. Is that what it's called? Like when a baby's all bright-eyed with a diaper full of shit? I don't know. I was just young and impressionable, right? So I'm doing this play, and it's in Calgary, Alberta. And the setup of it was just so... Sometimes you take things for experience. Sometimes you take things because you just don't know any better. So it it was a mixture of that. I had to commute from Edmonton, Alberta, two hours south to Calgary, Alberta. So it's about a two and a half hour bus ride south from Edmonton to Calgary. And I would do that multiple times during the week to rehearse this play. I would stay on the on a bed. I would sleep in like the director's uh, spare bedroom in his apartment. And I was getting paid nothing. But I thought it would be a good experience to be in a, you know, semi-pro production of a play I thought it would be good experience and it was but it was also just sometimes sometimes you just got to speak up for your value basically right and to be honest I was worth more than the production I was you know I was an experienced actor at that time just got out of theater school I'm not getting paid and you shouldn't worry about getting paid so much in the beginning you should be worried more about the experience but just there were so many factors that were wrong the commute time and no payment and there was like a two and a half three month commitment so it was all this commitment for kind of in hindsight in in retrospect i didn't know at the time but it was really no actual payoff and the cast and crew, like the director, the other actors, they were older than me. And to be honest, it was like a low-level production with a lot of ego. There was this actor, the lead actor. He was like 55-plus years old. And every day after rehearsal, he would sit in the back room and be like, Oh, I was terrible. Oh, I was horrible. Oh, I was no good tonight. I was no good. Oh, I was just no good. And all the other actors would clamor around him. No, you were great. You were really good. No, I was no good. I was no good. No, you were were really good. You're doing a really good job. Really? Uh, I'm doing a good job. So he was just such an egotist. And he was such an energy suck. And he always needed our attention. Oh, you know, I'm no good. I'm no good. Yes, you're good. You're good. And I remember looking at him and being like, yo, like when I'm 50... I hope to God I'm nothing like that, bro. Like, Jesus, Murphy. He was just such a diva. And also condescending. I remember one time we were working out a scene. And basically in the scene, um, my character is trying to revive another character who has overdosed. Overdosed on some kind of street narcotic. So my character is trying to... resuscitate somebody who's overdosed and i'm trying to add stakes to the scene and when when you say add stakes 
to a scene, that saying adds stakes. It's basically like up the stakes, up the ante, right? If you're going to play a scene where somebody's on the cusp of death, then try to commit emotionally to the reality of that scene. Like, holy shit, we're talking life and death here. Uh, Whatever you have to do to get to that place as an actor. I know what I have to do. I know what works for me. And I was trying to bring those stakes. And then that one actor I told you about, that, um, you know, that lily-livered 50-year-old, 50-year-old, you know, am I good, am I bad, am I good, am I bad? That drama queen, that diva, he's like uh, watching me perform and he's like, (coughs) like, yo, what are you snickering at there, uh, toots? Sweetheart, what are you what are you laughing at there, crybaby? Well, you know, uh, you know, you just, uh, you know, it's you know, it's a little much. It's a little, little overplayed. Uh, this is called adding, um, you know, it's called going all the way, and you got to go all the way to the edge to find out where the real balance is. You got to explore. You know what I mean? It's like playing a guitar. What? Just because this note doesn't sound right means what? You shouldn't ever play it? Uh, is that a good analogy? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, you got you to gotta strum the old banjo. You got to pluck. You got to play every note. You got to try every expression. You got to go to the edge. Push it to the limit. You got to go to the limit to find out what the right mix is. How do you know what the limit is if you don't push it? You got to explore. That's what makes you, that's what makes what you do alive, right? That makes, that's what makes your performance really realized and flushed out. And, you know, he's snickering at me. <laughs> oh, you're overplaying it. It's like, well, I'm sorry that I'm not just a stoic, one-dimensional, pathetic, hack, 55-plus-year-old actor like yourself, cryberry, crybaby, bitch-ass, fucking graying-haired pot-bellied, glasses-wearing, bitch-ass diva. But, um, you know, I actually try to put some effort, stakes, you know, urgency to my performing. (laughs) So I'm not sour about this at all. (laughs) I'm not bitter. You know, I've let this go. It's been 10 years. (laughs) But, um, yeah, it was like that. And also at the time, too, I was a little arrogant little fucker. (laughs) <laughs> we had all these stage props, right? Uh, stage props, uh, which are like, um, you know, things used for the performance. Stage props. Well, one of the stage props were cigarettes. My character used to smoke these clove cigarettes, right? But I was a broke-ass actor. I had no money. Like I said, they weren't paying me. I'm sleeping on somebody's floor, doing this shitty fucking play, you know, getting laughed at by some fucking 55-plus-year-old washed-up diva man. So then I'm like, yo, like, I'm smoking these cigarettes. I don't give a shit. So I'm in, I'm in the back of the fucking theater, right? I'm outside in the back smoking cigarettes, right? And every couple of days, the stage manager would come into the dressing room and be like, what happened to all the cigarettes? What happened to all the stage cigarettes? Somebody's smoking all the stage cigarettes. I'm like, yo, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, I ate all the cookies. (laughs) I was 19 years old. I was a starving actor. Um, I was sleeping, uh, in a spare bedroom of one of the other cast 
one of the other uh, actors in the cast. Uh, he was gracious enough to let me sleep in his uh, spare bedroom. And um, he's like, help yourself to all the food, help yourself to whatever you want. <laughs> so I guess his wife made a batch of cookies. And um, I took it literally. I'm like, damn, these are good cookies. And, you know, I, haven't, I, don't, I don't have any money for food. So I'm just eating all these cookies, right? And in, hide, in hindsight, it was gluttonous. It was, it was um, rude, uh, unmannerly. But, yo, it's just what it was. I was 19. I didn't know any damn better. I wasn't getting paid anything. I was hungry. So I ate all these cookies, right? I ate the whole batch of cookies. <laughs> the cookies that his wife made for everybody. Oh. So then the actor, he had his father. His father came over for dinner one night. And they're like, let's have dessert. <laughs> yeah, go, let's have some of those cookies. Let's have some of those cookies that Mariel made. Whatever the fuck his wife's name was. Mariel, go grab those cookies. So she goes to the cupboard to get the cookies. <gasps> Somebody ate all the cookies. Who ate all the cookies? I'm just standing there. I'm like, I don't know. I'm smoking one of those uh, stolen uh, stage cigarettes. I'm like, I don't know who ate all the cookies. <sighs> I'm eating cookies. I'm fucking smoking stage cigarettes. I'm living on the floor. It was a tough time as a young actor, you know. But um, these are the things that make you better, you know as a performer, as a human being. And I think about those cookies. <laughs> Sometimes I do think about those cookies because it was truly an obnoxious, unmannerly thing for me to do. Like, the man is gracious enough to let me stay in his home, have access to his fridge, his facilities. I can shower there. I can use the internet. And I was just too young and obnoxious to see that just because somebody is kind doesn't mean you take advantage. Just because somebody lets you do something doesn't mean you take it literally. You know, he, he said help yourself, so I figured, okay, I'll help myself. And I just ate the whole, I ate like a two dozen cookies. <laughs> what were they, like snickerdoodles? They were like snickerdoodles, like caramel, chocolate, peanut butter or something like that, snickerdoodle, whatever. And I just ate like all these snickerdoodles and I thought nothing of it. I was young. I was a kid. I was a kid. Anyways, Jonathan Ramtran, actor. I'm also a uh, alcoholic. <gasps> yes, alcoholic. Yes, two years, uh, eight months. Two years and eight months of sobriety. If you should need sobriety in your life, ladies and gentlemen, please go out there and seek it. It will change your life. What I did was I joined a 12-step program. I took things day by day, and after a while, those days started to add up, and here I am, sitting before you, two years, eight months sober. Within these 12-step programs, you can learn all sorts of different attitudes, ideas, and affirmations to help you in your journey of sobriety. It's a joyous thing. It's a reinvestment in yourself. Don't think of it as losing losing your freedom, losing your fun. Think of it as gaining your true self because that's what you're doing. You're gaining your true self. For the first time, you're investing in yourself in a positive way and you will be able to attain higher causes in your life because the thing about the alcoholic, the addict, we cross a line at some point where what we're doing is harmful, antisocial, 
and, um, you know, to get a little heavy, soulless, you know? And again, these 12-step programs, they don't rely on religion, a belief in God. It's all really up to you to place your uh, belief system where you want to place your belief system. But there is like a soulless kind of element to the alcohol drug abuser. You know, you're trying to fill some void in you. You're not feeling spiritually fit, spiritually sound, and you just kind of cover it up with a bunch of booze and alcohol, which are the same thing. Booze and alcohol and, um, uh, <laughs> you know, drugs, whatever it is. If you huff paint, <gasps> you know, you ever see that? I, I remember once I was watching a movie where this guy, he like, this woman, she spray, she takes like a spray can a paint spray can, she sprays it inside of a plastic bag. Then she puts the bag up to her face and just huffs it. And she's like, she falls on the sidewalk. She got paint all over her face and she's writhing in like this drugged out fucking euphoric uh, mess. That's a soulless person. You turn to huffing paint instead of, like, you know, paying your bills? Come on. So anyways, if you should need sobriety, please go out and seek it. I am also a uh, janitor. Yes, yeah, so what? I'm a janitor, huh? So what, huh? Mopping floors? Cleaning toilets? Huh? What, you wouldn't kiss a janitor, huh? Think you're better than me, don't you, huh? Well, guess what, honey? I'm in a union. Yeah. I got a pension coming, huh? What do you got, huh? Nothing. Yeah, go back to your mother. I don't need you. Yes, I'm a janitor. Uh, no chip on my shoulder about it at all. It's a very blessed thing. As I mentioned, I'm an alcoholic. So, um, idle hands are the devil's playground. <laughs> so, you know, when you're sitting around and twiddling your thumbs and twiddly D, that's when all the negativity, stupidity creeps into your mind, and you're more susceptible to um, bad actions, making wrong decisions. So when you're busy, hey, you're focused, right? So that's part of it. I'm a janitor. I got a day gig. It allows me to focus, earn money to pay my overhead, and it keeps me in the game of performing because as an actor, expenses come up. You need headshots. You need a decent wardrobe. You need equipment, laptop, camera, editing software, microphones, this, that, and the other. Things that help you get to the next level. Perhaps you want to take a class, a course. Perhaps you want a gym membership so you can stay fit. That's all a, you know, that's all a part of the game of being a performer. There's expenses. So that's what my janitorial hustle helps pay for. Hallelujah. And last of all, I am a stand-up comedian extraordinaire. Yes, I am. I, uh, what am I doing? Yes, I got a show tonight. I got a show tonight in downtown. Well, actually, really uh, a little east of downtown. It's on the Danforth. If you're familiar with Toronto, ladies and gentlemen, I'll be performing on the Danforth. That's like Greek town, Greek town, which is an area of Toronto. I'll be on the Danforth uh, this evening. 
telling some jokes, couple laughs, couple chuckles, couple guffaws, keeping the gears oiled and maintained. Happy hallelujah. I also am a show producer. I produce my own show, Our Righteous Mike. At the moment, it's on hiatus. I have to find a new venue. So that's also a part of what's coming up on the docket for me in my comedy career. Looking for a new venue to host my show. And these are the things that just keep me active and engaged that when I get that call, Jonathan Ramtram to the stage, please. When I get that call for the career to pick up, then hey, I'm ready for it, right? So it's all about that, maintaining myself. So there you have it. Jonathan Ramtaran, actor, alcoholic, janitor, stand-up comedian. So, welcome to the show. Yes, I've been reading in the paper. One moment, please. I need to take a sip of coffee. Yeah, I've been reading in the paper. TTC. TTC Teen Assault. Now, the TTC is the Toronto Transit Commission in Toronto. And they're kind of, uh, you know, they're, they're what, they're, they are what keeps Toronto in motion. Uh, millions, you could probably say millions of GTA at least thousands, hundreds of thousands of Torontonians use the TTC on a daily basis to get to work, to get to um, the grocery store, to get to their uh, court appointment, <laughs> whatever it is, you know. They use the TTC. It's the subway. It's the bus. It's the train. It's, uh, you know, it's there for us to get around this city. But unfortunately, it's not perfect. Sometimes they're slow. Sometimes they don't even show up at all. You'll be standing there in the middle of the winter. Your teeth are clattering. <laughs> Where's that fucking TTC bus? <laughs> you know, chilly. But lately, this new thing, uh, check this out. This is an article in the paper. Uh, TTC probe not fair. It's a play on words, you know. F-A-I-R versus F-A-R-E, you know, like a transit fair. It's a little play on words here. TTC probe not fair. Ombudsman says investigation into streetcar confrontation didn't look at potential racial bias. Reese Maxwell Crawford was brought has brought a lawsuit against the TTC alleging discrimination on basis of race, color, ancestry, ethnic origin, place of origin, or citizenship in regards to the 2018 incident. So basically, there's a black teenager who was roughed up by the fair inspection officers for the TTC, Toronto Transit Commission. And an ombudsman investigation says the, uh, the organization didn't look into potential racial bias. Now, what an ombudsman is, for all you who don't know, I didn't know either, I had to look it up. You don't hear that word every day. An ombudsman, O-M-B-U-D-S-M-A-N, ombudsman, 
An ombudsman, ombudsman person, ombud, or public advocate, is an official who is charged with representing the interests of the public by investigating and addressing complaints of maladministration or a violation of rights. So it's basically a public uh, agent involved in investigating uh, cases of maladministration, violation of rights, etc., etc. So here's a little bit from the article. This article came out in the Star Metro Toronto, weekend edition, July 12th through 14th, 2019. Now I'm just going to read you a little clip to give you a little information on the story. Watchdog, TTC inquiry wasn't fair, transparent. In a report released Thursday, Toronto Ombudsman Susan Oppler concluded the transit agency failed to examine evidence of potential racial bias in incident involving black customer and three fare inspectors. Written by Ben Spur. A city watchdog has identified serious flaws with the internal TTC investigation that largely exonerated three fare inspectors who forcibly detained a young black man on a streetcar platform last year. In a report released Thursday, Toronto Ombudsman Susan Oppler concluded that while the transit agency investigation into the conduct of its own officers had some positive aspects, it failed to examine the evidence of potential racial bias and was not adequately, adequately thorough, fair, transparent to support its conclusions. The TTC issued a statement saying the agency accepts her recommendations and committed the implementing of them by the end of this year. We are committed to human rights and celebrating diversity, and I know that we can and need to and will do better, said TTC CEO Rick Leary. The confrontation between the inspectors and the young man on the St. Clair streetcar route on February 18th 2018 was caught on video and raised concerns about the behavior of the transit officers after the footage and was widely circulated online. In a video shot by a bystander, the man, Reese Maxwell Crawford, who was 19 at the time, can be heard crying, I didn't do anything, though, and you're hurting me, as he's pinned to the ground by a trio of TTC inspectors as well as a Toronto police officer who came to assist them. That's from the uh, Star Metro Toronto, July 12th through 14th weekend edition. That's a free news rag that they hand out in downtown Toronto. Yes. So yes, this young black man is pinned to the ground by these three fair inspector officers. And um, it goes on to say in the article, uh, you know, the officers say that, oh, he, the, the, this young black man came into the, uh, came into the, came into the uh, station. Uh, what, is the, what do they say? He comes into the station. He comes into the area of the TTC station, whatever, and um, he's glaring at the transit cops and he's acting all tough and he's acting all threatening 
yet the video shows no evidence of that. So basically, they, they give these false statements saying that he's this threatening young individual staring at customers, staring at the TTC employees, but the video shows no evidence of that. He just kind of walks in and he's standing there. And apparently, there's some bias by the fair inspectors because there's a claim that one of the fair inspectors give, gave him a condescending smirk, which leads people to believe that there was, there was room for potential bias, as if these fair inspectors are starting something with this young man, smirking at him, giving him grief for no reason. And yes, um, the ombudsman, her report concluded that there was um, no insight into that racial bias, that the investigation was basically flawed. And this young man, Reese Maxwell Crawford, has lost has launched a lawsuit against the TTC. And I hope he wins. I hope he comes out the other end, uh, you know, with some retribution. And um, that would be nice for a young man who got something really ugly happen to him. A young man who had something really ugly happen to him. If he can come away with some compensation to kind of get past and move on in his life, that's great. And um, it, it goes back to, you know, what a lot of black men say, myself included. Now, I don't face the racial scrutiny and stigma of previous eras. I was, I'm not a slave. I didn't grow up in the civil rights era. But this is what black people have been saying for eons, it seems. There is a racial bias. I'm aware of it all the time. I walk into a cafe. <gasps> Everyone stares. <gasps> He's here to kill everybody. <gasps> hide your purse. Hide your purse. <gasps> Black man. <gasps> There's like this bias that, you know, black men are threatening. Black women are confrontational and um, obnoxious. Black people are the enemy. Ah. And I'm specifically speaking on black people. Other races have their other biases, their other problems, their other conflicts. But one stigma in the black community is, <gasps> they're a threat. <laughs> it happens to me all the time. And... Um, it's just whether or not people want to believe it or not. We're in this era where people are activists, activists, activating their activist agendas, speaking up for what they believe. And it's really up to the public to believe whether or not this bias exists. I mean, I can't convince people. All I can say as a black man, having lived on this planet for 32 years, it happens. You know? I'm not oppressed. I don't feel unsafe to leave my home. It's not everybody. But I get that level of bias from all sorts of races. Black, Asian, uh, Hispanic, Native, Aboriginal, European, even the black community. There is a stigma on the black man. That black man or women, black folk, People stare and they get obnoxious and not obnoxious, but um, they stare and they get, um, I don't know, judgmental 
on some bias that doesn't exist. When in history were black people beating, looting, robbing, hurting white folk? It's actually the other way around. They turned us into slaves, brought us to North America, um, enslaved us, culturally uh, sodomized us, tore families apart, treated us like subhuman uh, underlings, created racial biases and stereotypes that had nothing to do with reality. So it's, again, another part of their farce, the alleged uh, whatever, the they, the omnipotent, ominous they, quote-unquote, they. It's just another part of their agenda, the farce. Fear of black planet, ah, the black man, ah. But um, I just thought that was an interesting article. And bias exists. And bias exists for all cultures and all people and all different uh, genres. It's not exclusive to the black uh, plight. Hit me up, jr.thepodcast at gmail.com. Do you have any questions, queries, or qualms? Anything you'd like to add to that? How do you feel? How do you see things? Let's open the dialogue. That's how things get better jr.thepodcast at gmail.com. Well, actually, that's not how things get better. If you email me, you're probably going to get a rude, obnoxious reply. Fuck you, you dummy. (laughs) You know, I'll dismiss your claims. But uh, just in general, speaking and dialogue, that's how people get, that's how humanity has to go forward. You know, we got to address these things and be accepting of people. I know it's annoying I know it's annoying. As a comedian, as a black man, I have my biases. I get annoyed when people start complaining. You're being offensive. Why are you making fun of me for being this or that? Because I'm a fucking comedian and I'm an obnoxious fuck. That's why I do it. I understand. I understand. People are sensitive. They're sensitivities. But in general, we have to accept each other in order to move on in this planet. Right? Hallelujah. There's another little article that struck me as interesting. This was in the Now Magazine. Um, Now Magazine edition. Uh, What what edition is this Now Magazine? This is um, July 11th to 17th, 2019. Now Magazine. Beautiful little news rag in downtown Toronto. It's free. It speaks on um, issues in the Canadian government, international issues, and uh, more specifically, local, I guess, art, creativity, hipster shit, basically, right? Dorky hipsters in their little newspaper. But um, this is great. A great little news rag. Now Magazine. This interesting little article from the July 11th to 17th edition. It's on dating. And uh, I just want to read this because it's kind of um, pertaining to a lot of people in general, specifically millennials, people born between um, 1980 and 2000. Those are technically millennials. If you were born between the years 1980 to 2000, you're technically a millennial. So this speaks to my demographic. Here we go here. This is a little news article. Um, It was written by Michelle De Silva. Breaking up in Toronto is hard to do. The cost of living in the city is adding an extra layer of stress to ending relationships. By Michelle De Silva. This is just a little clip, a little snippet. 
Thousands of hearts are broken every day. People fall in love, they move in together, then things fall apart, and we're left to pick up the pieces and hope and hopefully try again. But in Toronto, where the average one-bedroom apartment is well over $2,000, the sheer cost of living and the precariousness of work adds an extra layer of complication to the end of relationships. According to a recent report, millennials are responsible for declining divorce rates, but it is partially because divorce itself is so expensive. In Ontario, divorce starts at $600, and that's just for the courts to review your application. The cost of breakups may be a reason why some couples choose to stick it out. The difficulty of securing a new apartment might be another. According to a 2018 report from the Canadian Housing and Mortgage Corporation, Toronto's vacancy rate for rentals was 0.7%, while the market rate for a one-bedroom was set at 12,000, sorry, rather, $1,270. This might not sound so dire, except that most landlords charge way more, which is why there's a discrepancy between the average rent and the market rate. When a couple split, typically one person gets to keep the shared home, sometimes benefiting from being grandfathered into the rent that costs less than a newly acquired rental. Meanwhile, the cost of electricity and internet bills, groceries, and even Netflix and Spotify accounts are suddenly doubled when a person strikes out on their own. When Now, the magazine, put out a call for folks who had survived a breakup in the city, members of Toronto's Broken Hearts Club came out in droves. We spoke to people who chose homelessness in order to get out of their relationship, and others who poured money into couples counseling in an attempt to stay in their dream home. All of them had moved out of the home they shared with their exes. Yeah. So in this article, they talk with some people who broke up and went through some horrible trial and tribulation in regards to uh, a dating breakup, having lived together, and the expenses that accrue. Hmm. It's terrible. It's tough in the dating world in general. I recently got off of a dating site Match.com, I just said, fuck it. It's such a weird thing, dating. It's a really strange climate that's so... There's a lot of ramifications and heaviness around dating in this day and age, I feel. Things aren't so straightforward. There's a lot of cultural tides going on. There's a lot of, as I mentioned, there's a lot of things going on in race. There's a lot of things going on in... um, Gender, sexuality, equality. There's a lot of things going on in finances. You know, it's no longer the cakewalk it used to be just to rent an apartment. You know, like the, like the thing says, the average rent of a home is like, uh, is like a one-bedroom apartment, according to this article. Uh, the market rate for one bedroom was set at $1,270. That's, a, that's quite a significant chunk to the person who's making like a minimum wage, right? So there's all these factors around the dating scene. And I just thought it was a little interesting article to read. A little bit of hope that I wanted to put forward out there into the universe. Um, it's the, uh, tr- the, this new incentive that the government has put forward. 
the Canadian government, uh, the first-time home buyer incentive. Now, the first-time home buyer incentive, I mean, this doesn't really correlate so much to the dating because it's like, well, people get together for all sorts of fucked up reasons. They get together out of desperation. Sometimes they get together out of finances, financial, like, yo, I need a place to live. Why don't I get a girlfriend or a boyfriend to share the cost? People think like that, oddly enough. So there's so many different factors, but one hopeful thing in terms of home ownership for the millennial crowd is um, it's the first time home buyer incentive. Now, you can get information online about this. Just look up home, first time home buyer incentive uh, in Canada. But basically, I got this information from uh, globalnews.ca. This is an article written by um, Erica Alini. Alani. Alini. Now, I'm just going to briefly quote some of the information. Um, the details of Ottawa's new first-time homebuyers incentive, the FTHB, are finally out. And the question for any Canadian struggling to afford their first home is, is it a good deal? So under the program, which was first announced in the federal budget in March, the government is offering an interest-free loan to help home buyers take out a smaller mortgage and keep monthly repayments lower. New information released on Monday clarified that, when the loan is repaid, the government will also get a share of the gains from the appreciation of the property. Vice versa, if the value of the home has dropped, Ottawa will shoulder a percentage of the loss. Okay. And um, to top it off, the incentive would be a second mortgage on the title of the property. The loan has no interest nor regular principal payments. You must repay the loan after 25 years when you sell the house, whichever comes first. You can also repay the loan at any point before th that with no penalty. The catch, though, is that if your home has appreciated at the time of repayment, the government gets a share of the gain. In our example, blah, 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 da diddly doo da diddly da Basically, the government is giving a first-time home buyer's incentive. That is basically, yo, if you want to buy a home and you're having a hard time coming up with a down payment, they're going to shoulder like they're going to shoulder a portion, a significant portion of the down payment, which in turn has to be repaid at the end of the mortgage. Or if there's a appreciation on the home, you may have to pay a little bit of that. Otherwise, it's basically a, a an interest-free um, basically an interest-free loan, more or less, for first-time home buyers. And this had me thinking about a lot of things. And the precariousness, the, the uncertainty of home ownership and dating. Home ownership, home rental, dating as a millennial. It's just very precarious, uncertain. My whole deal is don't get into anything that you're not certain about in your gut of gut. Because a lot of times people just don't ask themselves these questions. They don't ask themselves, is my partner the right person for me? Are we 100% clear on what we expect from each other? Have we talked it out? 
What do you expect as, from me as a boyfriend? What do you, I expect of you as a girlfriend? Or um, two boyfriends or two girlfriends or, you know, today I'm a girl, tomorrow I'm a boy. Like, you know, gender fluidity. What do we expect of our partners? What do we expect of each other? And also, are we financially sound to buy a home? We all want a home. We all want a beautiful apartment. But sometimes people are living above their means. They go and they spend more than necessary just to keep up with the Joneses. So while I do hear some of the complaints and, and um, concerns of the millennial crowd, myself, my peers, and just people in general, while I hear the cry, you know, the dating world's tough. Home ownership, rent, it's tough. A lot of it comes down to unrealistic expectations and... Um, not listening to those inner factors, the inner gut. Don't spend above your means. Don't get into a wishy-washy relationship. Use your goddamn common sense. Again, hit me up, jr.thepodcast at gmail.com. Do you have anything to add to that? Would you like to date me? <laughs> I want a mail order uh, wife. Send me your resume. What makes you a good wife? I'm getting myself into hot water here. You fucking misogynistic pig. You fucking hack. <laughs> I get that sometimes as a comic because my viewpoint is very, um, like I said, um, sensitivity is something that I don't always um, take heed to. So, you know, you start saying stupidity and um, you get the feedback. <laughs> But anyways, hit me up, jr.thepodcast at gmail.com. What do you think about that? Okay. And, um, yeah, now that the weather's getting better, now that um, summer's here and, you know, we're in like the plus 30s, the high 20s degrees Celsius, you know, it's like plus 25, plus 30, beautiful, sunny, Get outside and enjoy yourself. I'm thinking about buying a new bike. I've been thinking about it. I've been thinking about it. But you know, you know, to harken back to that article on finances and renting, like, you know, finances with me, I live within my means, right? And I'm very humble and happy to do that because my wants and needs are very limited. <laughs> I don't want for anything, you know, oh, maybe a cup of coffee, you know, a nice meal. What else do I want? Like a chain, you know, what do I want some chain to be like, oh, look at me, I'm blinging. Or like, do I want a, a car? Like, I don't, I don't want for things. So that's why I'm lucky in a lot of sense. I don't want for material things because I'm so much above you. <laughs> I'm better than you. I don't want for things because I'm spiritually sound. Ha <laughs> ha. You're in hell. <laughs> but generally speaking, I'm lucky in that I don't have many wants. And, um, but this new bike situation that I'm in, like I said, money is good for me, but it ain't that good. You know, like money is good for me at the moment where it's like, yeah, I can afford to drop like 500 to $1,000 on a hobby, an interest, you know, a want, quote unquote. 
but it ain't good for me. Money ain't good for me like that where it's like, well, I'm not going to feel it. Like, I'm going to feel it if I spend $500 to $1,000 on a bike. Like, I'm going to feel that. But I can also afford it. I can budget it out. I'll be fine. But it makes me think twice. Like, should I be doing that? Is there a way for me to get a... Be- for example, I want a brand new bike because I've been looking in to secondhand bikes. And bikes, for some reason, are one of those things that the the value doesn't seem to go down. You know what I mean? Like, let's say you buy a couch and you maintain a couch. Um, no matter what, it's a secondhand couch. So when you go to sell a secondhand couch, nobody's paying, you know, you got to drop the price significantly. If you paid $1,000 for this couch and you kept it for three years, when you go to sell it, it wouldn't be unheard of for you to have to sell it at like $200. You know, a significant drop in value. Who the fuck's going to pay top dollar for a secondhand couch? It's not worth anything anymore. It's had your dumb ass on it for the last couple of years. You've been farting. <laughs> been farting and jerking off on this dirty couch. Why am I going to pay top dollar for that? Well, for some reason, bikes don't seem to really go down in value. Like they go down. Like they're not like cars. Cars value depreciate because all sorts of things go wrong with the, with the mechanics of a car. Everybody wants the new car. The value goes down. Well... Bikes, for some reason, have vintage appeal, have collector appeal, and the value doesn't seem to go down. Like a second-hand bike, let's say like a, a special, like Specialized is a name brand, right? So a high-end brand name, like Specialized, Norico, Kona, um, G2, um, Rally, whatever, high-level high brand name bikes, the value doesn't seem to go down. So when you're looking for a secondhand bike, people are charging up the wazoo. They're charging up the fucking wazoo for some secondhand bike that's not worth anything. It's just worth something because of what it represents. I don't know. Like freedom, vintage appeal, coolness. I don't know why, but secondhand bikes aren't exactly cheap. So it gets you thinking to yourself, well, you might as well buy a brand new one. And I've been looking into some bikes, and it's just like, well, like I said, money ain't great for me like that, where it's like, sorry, that's just my uh, chair squeaking. I didn't fart. That's my chair. I've been looking into secondhand bikes. I'm just like, yo, I don't, I don't know if I want to be dropping that, because the care, the carefree days of bike riding are unfortunately not not really a reality in a modern city in a metropolis check this out this is also from the now magazine july uh july uh 11th to 17th edition this is also an article and uh, i'm just gonna give you a brief snippet uh Yeah, do do do. Well, here we go. All right. I'm a vision. Zero statistic. Last year, 41 cyclists were killed or seriously injured in the streets of Toronto. I was one of them. So this article was written by Bronwyn Graves. 
She's a cyclist, a writer, a writer and a cyclist in downtown Toronto. She was seriously injured last year. Um, according to, uh, one moment, a, uh, according to blogto.com, uh, they report that 41 pedestrians and five cyclists were killed in 2018. And when you watch the news every day, you always hear about pedestrians getting run over, people getting hit by cars and shit. And that's a reality of being a pedestrian and a cyclist in a big metropolis such as Toronto. You know, riding a bike in Toronto is not exactly a cake walk or a cake ride. A cake ride. Check this article. I'll be real brief on it. Um, on a Sunday, on a sunny Monday last June, I was strapped. I strapped on my helmet, hopped on a bike, and began my commute to downtown Toronto. I was cycling westbound, protected by the false security of Sharrows, a poor person's substitute for a separated bike lane, when I was T-boned by an SUV. There was no good reason. Visibility was fine, traffic was light, and the signal in front of me was green. But the driver failed to slow down as he made a fast left. Video of the accident taken by a camera at a nearby construction site shows me flying about 6 meters in the air and my body was limp. Sorry, camera at a nearby construction site shows me flying about 6 meters in the air and my limp body skidding to a halt on the asphalt. I sustained several serious injuries, including ligament damage on the left side of my body, shattered bones, internal bleeding, and a concussion. A handful of bystanders came to my aid, but I don't remember them. I was conscious by the time the ambulance arrived, but barely. Every doctor I saw in the trauma unit, there was a revolving door of them, told me I was incredibly lucky to be alive. The kind of doctor, the kind doctor who glued my face back together, assured me that the scars would be barely noticeable once healed. I was eventually released from the adult care and moved to a rehabilitation hospital where an intensive regime of physiotherapy began. It took me three months to walk again and five to walk without a cane. One year later, I still have pain every day. That article was written by Bronwyn Graves for the Now magazine, as I had mentioned. So yeah, that's the, re that's the reality of riding a bike. And uh, it's, it's not like fun. That's the one thing I noticed. It looks like a headache. So it's like while I very much would like to get a new bike and ride around, it looks kind of... Like, just as a pedestrian, man, I'm telling you, these, these fucking Torontonian drivers, they're savage, man. They never, they never yield to pedestrians. They drive like assholes. It's really got me thinking because it's like financially, I'm not really, you know, you know, it's a, it, it, it would be a significant financial investment for me at the moment to drop a thousand dollars on a bike money just ain't like that for me like i mentioned i'm a humble janitor stand-up comedian actor you know I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm like a fucking church mouse i'm like a church mouse so like for me to go drop that on a bike hmm, it would make a it would make a significant impact on my finances and number two uh driving riding a bike in the city is a pain in the ass i see it man drivers are just fucking 
road-raging, obnoxious morons, entitled, they never yield. And I was hit by a car. Yeah, when I was a six-year-old boy, I was running across the street and got hit by a car. I was unconscious, knocked out. I woke up in the ambulance. Um, they put pins in my leg. I had a fractured femur. My mother had to wipe my ass. I was like a six-year-old boy. I remember my poor mother had to bend over and wipe my ass. Like, you know, and I remember going to rehab. The nurses were complete bitches. I'm like, my leg, I can't do it. And they're like, look at you. You're whining and whimpering. Look at that 80-year-old man over there. He can walk. Look at him. He can walk. Why can't you walk? I'm like, my femur's broken. I was like a six-year-old boy. These nurses are yelling at me. So I know the heartache and pain of being hit by a car. You know what I mean? And a lot of these drivers out there, they'd have no fucking... They're just so dumb. You know what I mean? The stupidity to get behind a wheel and drive so cavalierly, completely oblivious to the reality that you are driving a weapon. You are driving something that could fatally impact a life to kill somebody with your careless meanderings behind the wheel to severely injure somebody with your careless wants i have to get to starbucks i'm gonna ride this i'm gonna run this light oh i have to get to the grocery store oh you know and just driving like a lunatic so I'm still out to lunch. I don't know what I'm going to do. Because actually yesterday I went on a uh, bike purchasing mission. I went and I checked out a few bike shops yesterday. It was fun, you know. It was walking around in the beautiful downtown. And like I said, it's beautiful. But you know what? I couldn't help but notice as I was shopping for a bike. Heavy traffic. Heavy traffic. Traffic everywhere. I'm just like, mm, I don't know. And um, as I mentioned, I went to a couple secondhand bike stores, and again, they're trying to pawn off these secondhand bikes that truly aren't worth anything, considering that there's a bunch of new and uh, smoother riding. Like a new bicycle is obviously better than a secondhand one. You know? Like, I don't see the value in a secondhand bike. Like, for example, musical instruments. Sometimes a musical instrument secondhand is better than a brand new one. You know, sometimes they make something that came from an era that has a certain sound and a feel to it that can't be replicated. You know, case in point, like an instrument, like an old guitar, a vintage classic guitar might have a different sound and feel to just some cookie-cutter, factory-made new guitar. You know, I'm a bass player myself, so I, I play bass guitar I know a little bit about vintage instruments. Sometimes vintage instruments just have a better sound and feel. Sometimes um, vintage cars, for example, you know. I mean, I know I said car value doesn't appreciate, it depreciates. But sometimes there is such a thing as like vintage cars, right? Vintage cars have a certain je ne sais quoi, a certain quality to them. Explain to me the je ne sais quoi of a vintage bike. It's a piece of shit from 1950 fucking 72, you know, or 1980 or 1990, some shitty secondhand bike, or the early 2000s, or the mid-2000s, right? You know, you got some shitty secondhand bike, and chances are that it's older, it's not going to ride as smoothly. 
going to be a clunky ride. So why are you trying to pawn it off to me at top dollar? So I'm checking out all these different bike shops and they're trying to sell their bikes, you know, incredible markups, right? I'm like, hmm. Then I went to new bicycle shops, right? Shops selling new bikes. And you can get a new bike for like $100. But I know what I want and I believe in quality. So the quality of bikes that I saw, I would have to expend, I would have to spend at least $500. So I'm thinking to myself, hmm, the financial the financial taxings of a new bike along with the shitty fucking motorists of Toronto. It's really got me thinking. I have to do a little bit more research. I have to do a little bit more meditating on that. I don't know if getting a new bike is just something I want to do at this moment. Yeah. And ironically, (laughs) as I was walking home from my little shopping trip uh, yesterday, walking home... (laughs) You know, uh, I'm walking by this alley and all of a sudden I hear, Hey, hey, want to buy a bike? I was like, what? Coincidentally, I do. And I look down this alley and there's this fucking crackhead. Hey, you want to buy a bike? He's sitting on this bike that he had obviously stolen. (laughs) And I'm like, "Uh, uh, no, sir. No, thank you. No, thank you. Uh, Thank you anyways, though. And I keep walking. Hey, you want to buy a bike? Just had me laughing too because like my response, oh no thank you sir, no thank you, but thanks anyways. <laughs> and uh, yeah, those are just some of the things that uh, I've been dealing with in this beautiful downtown Toronto summer 2019, right? And I had a glorious day yesterday too. Um, I went down to a park, sat on a bench, and that's where I was reading these news articles. That's where I was reading these news articles on a bench in, uh, in uh, I guess, uh, I don't know what the name of the park is. It's, uh, it's in the Koreatown or Chinatown. Yeah, Chinatown 2. There's a second Tor- Chinatown in Toronto. That's on Gerard Street East, Riverdale area. So I went down to the park in the Riverdale area of Toronto, Riverdale Chinatown, sat on a bench, and I was reading the newspaper, and what a tranquil, beautiful sound of the wind and the trees. The wind and the trees. Just sitting on a bench, reading about dating, reading about bicycles, looking at the birds, looking at the squirrels. And I had some, I had some bird seeds in my bag to feed the birds, and I was thinking to myself, yo, let's feed the birds. I'm like, nah. No, it's just too peaceful. The beautiful sound of the tree and the wind. The rustling leaves. But I went ahead. I went ahead and I fed the pigeons. And uh, it was blessed. Fed the pigeons. (coughs) Fed the pigeons. Fed the sparrows. The seagulls. Had some peanuts for the squirrels. And I was just sitting on a bench reading these news articles, listening to the wind. And that's the tranquil shit that I'm doing in my day-to-day. And, um, you know, feeling just happy. And I wish that all to you, my dear listeners, in this beautiful summer of 2019. It's your old chuckle buddy, guess who, Jonathan James Ramtrain. 
reporting live for duty on this glorious July 14th in the year of our Lord, 2019. Bicycles, dating, TTC beatdowns, hit me up, jr.thepodcast at gmail.com. You got any questions, queries, or qualms regarding the content of today's episode? Hit me up, jr.thepodcast at gmail.com. Please, if you're listening on YouTube, I appreciate it very much. Please, smash that like button, you know? Show me a little bit of love. Subscribe to the channel if you like. This is something I do every week, and great things to come. I'm going to talk more about that when the time comes, but there are different innovating factors coming along the way for Jonathan Rancher on the podcast. So, please, stay tuned. Till next time, ladies and gentlemen, you live it, you love it, you realize it. All right? Peace.